0: You say, well how ridiculous that if there's a hurricane or tornado that there's some deity that is angry and we need to appease him. No more ridiculous today than when people bring their scapulas and confirmation certificates and baptism certificates and their golden rule and their good deeds and a host of other things that they have done somehow thinking that God will be satisfied.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible-teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we're looking at the ground of the believer's justification, Jesus Christ and His cross, and why they are so important. It's all part of our study in the Book of Romans. So let's join Dr. Brogy now as he begins reading from Romans 3, verse 24
0: being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And there are three truths around this word redemption that I hope we will walk away with. First, the meaning of redemption. What does the word redemption mean? Well, it just means payment by a price. A synonym in English might be a ransom. Someone kidnaps your child and they say, for $200,000 you can have your child back. That's the redemptive price, that's the ransom. And the Greek word is barred from the commercial market of the day, just like the word justification was a legal term barred from the first century courtroom. The word uh, redemption was a commercial term bought from the marketplace. Now remember, we forget this sometimes, but during the time that the New Testament was being written, the highest percentage of people alive in the Roman Empire were slaves. There were 60 million slaves when the New Testament was being written. Now, that's important to understand. When Rome came in and they conquered a people, they didn't imprison them, but they subjugated them through the process of slavery. And if you were a Roman citizen, you would often be assigned a slave. That's why in the New Testament letters you can have a Christian who's a master of a slave. And you can have a a slave who has a Christian master and so the exhortations on how they were to treat one another. And slaves really encompassed people of every profession. They didn't simply do menial tasks. There were some who were doctors and surgeons and, and lawyers and all kinds of things that you can imagine. And so with 60 million people, some were assigned, other slaves were inherited, others could be acquired where you went into the marketplace and you bought yourself a slave. You could redeem a slave. And it's in that sense that we're going to think about this word redemption this morning. So that's the word or the meaning of redemption, to, to purchase with the pain of a price. Secondly, I want us to think about the means of redemption, the means. How did God redeem us? What was the price paid? Well, let me quote the Apostle Peter. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so now God holds us totally accountable to the one who purchased us with his own blood. And for you to become a Christian, you have to acknowledge that there's no other basis for which God can save you and buy you apart from the blood of Christ. Suppose uh, suppose Michael over here comes to me and says, Pastor, I, I want to give you a brand new Lincoln Continental. I just appreciate you so much, I want you to have a brand new Lincoln. I said, no, I, I couldn't accept such an expensive gift. No, pastor, I, I want you to have this brand new Lincoln. I really want you to do that. And he gives me a brand new Lincoln. I say, Michael, by the way, what, what do you pay for that car? Kind of being brash. And Michael says, well, I, I bought you a car with all the bells and whistles. I paid $40,000 for that Lincoln. I said, well... Michael let me help you pay for that link and I don't feel right just accepting it and uh, I reach down into my pocket and I pull out a quarter and I said here take this and I mean he's just utterly insulted and you see me driving around my brand new Lincoln you say hey, pastor nice car where would you get it oh well Michael and I bought it now can you imagine such a statement he paid thirty nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars and seventy five cents and I gave my two bits. I said, Look what Michael and I did. That's what we do when we bring our deeds to God Almighty. God shed his precious blood, he redeemed us, he finished all of God's just demands against us, and when you bring your puny works, they are an absolute insult to God, and that's why we've been seeing all the way through Romans up to this point, that God either saves you on the basis of grace through faith, apart from anything that you can do, or he does not save you at all. And so Paul will write to the Ephesians in chapter 1, that we have redemption through his blood, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now one other truth about redemption, let's think about the message, the message of redemption. And I just want to introduce it to you because Paul is going to explain it in a full-blown way as we move through the epistle to the Romans. Again, just as justification is a legal term barred from the courtroom, the word redemption is a commercial term barred from the slave market. And so when you went into the slave market, if you were wealthy, you could buy, you could not only be assigned slaves, but if you wanted more, you could buy slaves. And Paul is gonna talk about in Romans 6 through 8 how God with his precious blood came into the slave market of sin and he bought you. And because he bought you, you are under a new ownership. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own? Because you've been bought with a price. And so you are to live to glorify God in your body. God bought you, he redeemed you, not to free you to serve the world, the flesh and the devil. He freed you, he bought you, so that you could serve Jesus Christ. So God redeemed us through the cross. Secondly, this morning, as we think about the ground of our justification, I want you to see that God was propitiated through the cross. The power of the cross is demonstrated not only through redemption, but through propitiation. Now, this is a very important word. The word redeemed is a word that describes what Christ did for man. When God redeemed us, he paid the price necessary such that he could justify us, such that he could declare us righteous. Redemption is man But I want you to see that this word propitiation is Godward. It looks up to the Father. And so in verse 25, the perspective changes from what Jesus did when he died for us to what Jesus did when he satisfied the Father. He was propitiated. Look at verse 25. The first word is whom. That's a reference to the last two words of verse 24, Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly. Jesus Christ is the one whom God displayed publicly. That's another way of saying it was Jesus Christ who was put up there on the cross, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Now, this is a very important word, and you need to understand it. Now, we don't use it today. It's even hard to pronounce sometimes. But if you looked it up in the dictionary, the gloss definition would be to appease or to satisfy wrath. And that's a good place to start most of the time when, when you're trying to determine the meaning of a biblical word. Go to the English Dictionary. Because a good translation is asking, what's the best word today in our language that reflects that word in the original? And it carries the idea of appeasing or satisfying wrath. I remember one politician being forced to resign, and his word caught me because you don't usually hear people use the word propitiation. He said, I hope, and I quote, you're finally propitiated by my willingness to step down. Here's an essence saying, I, I hope your anger is satisfied. As the Speaker of the House, he was saying, I, I hope your anger is satisfied, and I, now you, you, know, you can let me go free, so to speak. If you look up in a thesaurus, a, a, a book that gives you synonyms, it will give you words like placation, appeasement, pacification, calming, soothing, conciliation, and satisfaction. In one word, it just means a satisfaction. Um, in 1 John chapter 2, it s- describes how God's wrath was satisfied, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. Again, John will use it in First John chapter 4, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I believe one of the reasons the term propitiation is largely forgotten today in the church is for the simple reason that we no longer present God as holy and just and as a God of wrath. Those are truths that have been suffocated in the preaching of this day, that God hates sin and that His anger burns towards sin. And so we used to, uh, in the last couple of decades, speak of these hellfire damnation preachers as if they were something bad. And so now we have a much more uh, pleasing, easy, soft message for people to hear. And because people have a distorted view of the character of God, they can't appreciate this word Propitiation. And some Christians have a false view and understanding of what God is like. And this is why he gave us the book of Romans. We often use what we call the Roman road to lead people to Christ. But remember, the book of Romans was not given to those who are lost, but to those who are saved. He's writing, seven says, to the saints who are at Rome. And he's giving us this epistle so that our minds can be renewed, so that we think properly about God and who he really is. So, there are three things that I want you to think about when you think about this word propitiation. First, the need for it. Secondly, the author of it. And thirdly, the means to it. First, the need for propitiation. Now, again, in in Bible days, false gods would need to be propitiated. Why? Because they were viewed sometimes as irritable, as unpredictable, subject to moods and fits where they would fly off the handle. And so, if a hurricane approached a land, they would say, well, the gods of The God of hurricanes is angry, and we need to appease His anger. We need to appease His wrath. And so that was the thought in that day. Now contrast that kind of thinking with the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible is not subject to fit and moods. His wrath is not unpredictable. It's very predictable. It is always in response to sin. And so there's the need for propitiation. Also think about the author of propitiation. Again, in pagan religions, fearful that they had somehow offended their God, they would do something on their own to appease Him. So humans always initiated the process of propitiation contrast that with the use of the word in the bible it's not man who can propitiate god it's not man who takes the initiative but god takes the initiative it's god to the rescue for god so loved the world that's god coming down in christ to rescue us right after Adam sins god comes into the garden he says where are you adam and the simple answer is he is lost and God wants to show that to Adam. Who told you that you were naked? Who Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What is this you have done? God knew the answers to all those questions. He knew what they had done. But he wanted Adam and Eve to see what they had done. That they needed to be forgiven and restored. You would think that Adam, after he'd committed that sin, would say, oh my Lord, you've been so kind and merciful. Oh, what have I done? Please have mercy on me. But no, man is not seeking God. He's running from God, he's hiding from God. Just as we read earlier in this chapter, there's none who seeks God, no, not one. So God comes to the rescue, and this is love, not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now look further into verse 25. When you think about the author of propitiation, it says that he, God, displayed publicly. The King James says he set forth. The English Standard Version says he put forward. He put forward, he set forth, he displayed publicly the Lord Jesus as a propitiation. So I want you to see the love, the initiative, began not with man, but with God. So there's the need, there's the author. Third, I want you to think about the means of propitiation. Again, in pagan religions, it was something that man did. Some material gift, some fruit or sacrifice that he would offer. But in the Bible's religion, it was something that God did. People in Paul's day again would say, well, the God of so-and-so is angry, let's appease him. It was a common everyday word. We we hardly use the word today in English. But it was a common day word in that day. You say, well, how ridiculous that if there's a hurricane or tornado, that there's some deity that is angry and we need to appease him. No more ridiculous today than when people bring their scapulas and confirmation certificates and baptism certificates and their golden rule and their good deeds and a host of other things that they have done somehow thinking that God will be satisfied and many people are convinced that when they die and they meet God, God will say, oh, I know you, you're, you're a nice guy, come on in. That's their view of God and they do not understand that God hates sin, that God must be propitiated and so all the way back in the book of Genesis. God began to teach Adam and Eve that fig leaf religion, what man can do through the work of his own hands is not going to satisfy a holy God. And so, he makes them coats of skin. And so, Abel's blood sacrifice is accepted and Cain's is rejected. And then God sets up the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament. If you remember in that one section of the temple, the holiest place in the temple or earlier in the tabernacle, it was called the Holy of Holies. And the high priest went behind the curtain. Just one man could go and he went behind the curtain once a year and then just for a few moments. And behind that curtain was a box about the size of this pulpit turned sideways. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. Nothing like the movie, though I did not see the movie, but nothing like it. No, the the Ark of the Covenant was a box, and in it contained the second set of Ten Commandments, because the first were smashed due to the rebellion of the people. And it was a picture that they had rejected God's law. There was the butted rod of of Aaron. Remember, when they rejected Aaron's leadership, God did a miracle, and He took an old dead stick, a staff, And he made it come alive and it budded and there were almonds that grew on it. That was in the box, a symbol that they had rejected God's leadership. But then third, there was the jar of manna, a picture of God's provision where they said, we hate this manna, we're sick of this food. They rejected God's law, they rejected God's leadership, they rejected God's uh, provision. And so once a year on Yom Kippur, Yom Day Kippur atonement, on the day of atonement, the high priest would go in. And he would stand before that box, and he would take the blood of an innocent ram, an innocent lamb, and he would spill it on the top of what was called the mercy seat, or in Greek, the propitiatory seat. In the Greek translation, it's called the propitiatory seat. And what were they saying? That when God looked down on he- from heaven, he didn't see those objects that represented man's sin and rebellion. All he saw was the blood. Now, of course, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. That was just symbolic. As our baptism is symbolic, looking back, those acts were symbolic looking forward to the Lamb of God who'd take away the sins of the world. And so God is angry. He needs to be propitiated. His wrath needs to be averted. But we don't like to think of God in those terms today, that God is a God of wrath. Paul has already introduced us in Romans 1.18 to the wrath of God. When you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. Do you understand that God is a God of wrath, that His wrath is real, that it is indeed coming, and when it comes, it will come for all of eternity? In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, we read of a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire that will consume God's adversaries. We often like to quote verses like this, God is love, but we don't like to quote a verse later used in the same epistle, Hebrews 12, 29, where it says God is a consuming fire. Most of us, if we think of God even in terms of fire, we think of Him as soft candlelight or a warm fireplace, but not in Scripture. God is a consuming fire. You know, I took out this week, Every major evangelical tract that has been used in the last 25 years, I have them all. I used to train people with them all, and I would be rather frustrated at times because in none of them, not one, is there any mention of hell. There's not a single mention of the eternal retribution of God. Now, I'm not one of these guys who want to create a tract with people, you know, in flames and all that, trying to be dramatic. But you cannot understand propitiation, you cannot understand the cross, unless you understand that God is a God of wrath, and His wrath must be satisfied, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood. So God is propitiated not by something that we do, but in the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, in justification, God's holiness is satisfied. In redemption, God's justice is satisfied. But in propitiation, the heart of God is satisfied. His righteous anger against us is satisfied. See, most people think of the judgment of God as something way out there in the future where God's got the big scale in the sky and if the good outweigh the bad, he'll say, come on in, you've made it. When the truth of the matter is, is that the Bible teaches man is already judged. Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides upon him. He said, the son of man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. He who does not believe is condemned already. The judgment's already been settled. God has already said, we are guilty. We're already on the broad road that is leading to destruction. That's why Ephesians 2, 3 says, by nature, we're children of wrath. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. You've already been condemned. You've already been tried and found guilty. He came to save the world, to deliver the world. And so it was through the blood of Christ that God's wounded heart was satisfied. God's righteousness was so offended by the sin of man that there came a point in the history of the world where the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, Genesis 6, and he was grieved in his heart. And so God's justice had to be satisfied. But listen, because the Father was propitiated, understand this. Understand the implications for your life if you've been saved from God's wrath. God's not angry with you. His anger has been burned out in a substitute, His Son. Don't ever think, well, you know, I'm in trouble today because God's angry with me. He doesn't deal with you in anger if you have truly, genuinely been saved. The Bible says in 1 John, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. God doesn't deal with you in anger. Now, he will deal with you as a loving father, as a divine disciplinarian, but not out of his anger because his anger has been poured out in Jesus Christ. Here's a good way to think of propitiation. God gave of Himself to save us from Himself. And we will see that indeed the giving of the Son of God, as John 3, 16 and Romans 5, 8 indicates, is a demonstration of God's love. People say, well, how could it be a demonstration? The Father's not the one who died. Because in New Testament theology, God is one, as in Old Testament theology, and it is impossible to separate the members of the Godhead. And so God gave a demonstration of his love, and he burned his wrath out on Christ. He gave of himself to save us from himself, namely his just wrath. Again, in verse 25, notice, again, I want you to think about the means by which it comes into your life, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Two words you want to put together, the word blood and the word faith. Remember, the wages of sin is death. And so since the life is in the blood, the Bible says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And so propitiation cannot be had without blood. But it cannot be operative in your life but by faith. Just because Jesus died for the propitiation of the sins of the whole world doesn't mean the whole world's saved. You have to come through faith, all right? So there's The fact that God redeemed us through the cross, God was propitiated through the cross. Third and finally, I want you to see that God's righteousness was demonstrated through the cross. It was a demonstration. Look, if you will, in verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Underline that word demonstration. Now, listen, this is a challenging section. Don't miss it. It's very important. It's the most difficult part of the whole paragraph, and I want you to pay attention. And again, we're not hearing sermons like this anymore in the church. There's preachers who stand up, who tickle your ears, who make you feel good. You don't need a Bible to hear it. No wonder we have so many false brethren in the church today. No wonder we have so many immature Christians. Underline the word demonstrate in verse 25, and then again in verse 26, for the demonstration I save His righteousness at the present time. Three aspects to demonstration that are brought out in these two verses. First, the demonstration of God's justice concerning the past. There's a demonstration of God's justice concerning the past. Now, in order to understand this demonstration of God's justice and what took place, Paul is making a deliberate contrast between the past and the present. Notice verse 25. In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. The Holy Spirit here mentions the forbearance of God. Another translation says God was waiting patiently. Or it speaks of God's restraint. God temporarily withheld judgment because in his forbearance, in his patience, he was looking forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so God was able to pass over the sins previously committed in Old Testament times. God was looking forward to the death of Christ. So the death of Christ was a retroactive death. It reached all the way back into time for all of the prior generations, just as Jesus, the Bible says, died for your sin and you weren't even alive and hadn't committed the first when he came to this earth. For by one offering, the Bible says, he has perfected for all time those who are perfected. So there's a demonstration of his righteousness concerning the past. God didn't condone sin when he didn't smush man when he sinned. God wasn't acting unjustly when he did nothing. God was acting patiently. He was acting forbearingly. He was looking forward to that sacrifice of His Son. Secondly, the demonstration of God's justice concerning the present. Again, a second time in verse 26, the word is used. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. Again, there's a contrast here. Don't miss it. Between the past and the present. God didn't immediately punish sins in Old Testament times. That's not because he was condoning evil or acting any less justly. Again, he was looking forward to that time. You know, you ask people today, the average Christian, why did Jesus die on the cross? What do they say? Because he loved us. It was a demonstration of his love, and indeed it is. But Paul wants you to see that it's more than a demonstration of his love.
1: Jesus' death on a cross was a demonstration of His love for us. And tomorrow, when we conclude our message, The Power of the Cross, we'll see that Jesus' death on a cross was a demonstration of His righteousness. To listen again to today's study from Romans 3.24, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and search for program ROM15. You can also hear this and all of Pastor Brogy's messages on our Search the Scriptures app, available from the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And when you contact us, please consider helping support this ministry with a one-time gift or a monthly partnership. Tomorrow we conclude our look at God's Way of Salvation. Join us then as we Search the Scriptures.